Welcome to the War from Boise, Idaho. This is your host, Adam Graham. Send your comments to Box13 at GreatDetectives.net. Today is D-Day, minus one. And most Americans weren't aware of what was about to happen. Indeed, the eyes of the world were elsewhere, uh, particularly on in Italy. This was no longer 1942, where the United States was... Uh, struggling against the threat of German U-boats and the might of the Japanese uh, Navy. This was 1944, where the Allies have made great strides uh, in the face of their fascist foes. Uh, so a couple of programs that will represent uh, where America was at and what people were listening to. First, from June 3rd of 1944, is an episode of the NBC News' program, War Telescope. And then from June 5th of 1944, is an episode, is a President Roosevelt's uh, fireside chat. So let's take a listen. Let's look at the war through the NBC War Telescope. It is focused each Saturday at this time on London, where members of NBC's London staff bring you interesting sidelights on the war. Today it is Merrill Muller, so go ahead, NBC London. London. All day long, London has echoed the roar and rumble of aircraft engines. Hour after hour has gone by with the thunder of American motors overhead at some time during each 60 minutes. Our NBC coastal observers report a record daylight attack going on across the Straits of Dover. Again, walls are shaking, doors are rattling, and pictures bouncing off the walls of South Coast English homes. Even as the pounding now continues... With successive relays of fighter bombers, light bombers, and medium bombers, the American 8th Air Force has just issued a communique of two heavy daylight assaults. The fact that this communique has come out so early, and after two missions have already been completed, emphasizes that a full blitz is on, and there is still some three hours of daylight left for yet more attacks. About 500 American bombers and fighters went to the Pas-de-Calais and Boulogne areas to plaster military targets in two separate raids that were described as strictly milk runs. A tremendous weight of bombs has fallen in these two areas in the past 24 hours. Both the American and, and Allied Air Forces have concentrated much of their bombing efforts on the coastal strip, except for the RAF's attack on the trap railway yards last night, which we now know cost 17 British planes. Seven enemy night fighters were destroyed. This great air domination not only means bombing death and destruction to the enemy, it means an open channel of attack from the skies by men designed to fight on the ground. There is a great new arm for modern warfare, a weapon with the deep offensive striking effectiveness of the air forces, plus the all-important ground occupational value of the army. So far in this war, this Russian-invented weapon has only been locally employed on a limited scale. But if we can believe German warnings to their West Wall troops, the world is about to see the greatest application and exploitation of aerial assault ever conceived. That will be the airborne attack phase of the coming invasion of Europe, the deep penetrations of the enemy's lines by the 9th Air Force Troop Carrier Command planes and gliders filled with air commandos of specially trained infantry and parachutes. The word glider, however, is the key to the tremendous value of this new means of warfare, and today's war telescope is dedicated to the 9th Air Force pilots who fly the glider planes and fight with the troops they land within the enemy's positions. These men are dual-purpose personnel. Their silent gliding means of transportation have more uses than is commonly believed, and above all, their work is not that of suicide squads. The enemy's radio reported that the Allies have between 80 and 100,000 airborne troops ready for the attacks to come. 
And our own radio recently announced the arrival in this theater of a military glider pilot from Southeast Asia. That officer, Major William H. Taylor, Jr., 33-year-old leader of the glider section of the 1st Air Commando Group in the Burma campaign, was ordered to England to advise the Troop Carrier Command on what to expect on operations. Major Taylor, who was awarded the British Distinguished Service Order for his work with the General Wingate Colonel Cochrane Air Commando Forces, says he comes from Washington, D.C. He's here in the studio this afternoon to give you an insight to glider-borne infantry operations. Gliders give any task force commander everything as a means of attack that has ever been dreamed of. It makes it possible to design bombardment missions with the intention of occupying a target and not destroying it. You can drop a glider combat force with greater fighting power than any bombing effort. Such a force can be dropped anywhere in the enemy lines providing tactical surprise, and it can fester there or retire. No such mission when well planned is a suicide assignment. It's a mistake to think any commander would waste picked troops like that. It's a teamwork job, isn't it, Major? It's the essence of military perfection, requiring the greatest cooperation of troop carrier tug planes, glider pilots, the airborne forces, and the coordination of the other ground and air forces around our mission. That implies a change of conception from just spearhead units of attack to a self-contained airborne attacking force. Right. That's one of the lessons we have learned. Airborne forces are no longer considered a diversionary body. They are a type of secret offensive weapon that keeps the enemy tense and nervous and throws the enemy into confusion when they strike. Surprise and confusion are two of the airborne forces' greatest assets. It means the enemy must employ a large number of troops on scattered protective assignments rather than fighting in his front lines. Thus, our mere organization makes us effective whether we are employed in attacks or not. Once we are used to attack, we are doubly effective. We are not only fighting on the ground, but the balance of our strength still threatens to strike at other points from the air. And, of course, your range of operations is limited only by the extreme range of your tug and supply planes. Theoretically, you could land and fight inside Germany if your tug planes could keep flying supplies and reinforcements to you. Uh, we can operate anywhere within our aircraft's range, even, our, even landing our gliders on devastated territory that would obstruct normal air forces. That raises an interesting point. Can you describe the composition of an airborne force of glider troops for us? Well, an airborne outfit is an inf infantry division specially trained with the kind of weapons necessary to employ because of that type of transportation. The weapons are normal type and caliber, but made in light metals and of compact form for air transportation. An infantry division with these light weapons is complete even with its own engineer companies and attached aviation engineers for the flight strip, except for heavy artillery and tanks. However, in these are with us in the air. Dive bombers and medium bombers assigned to an air commando group for an operation serve as artillery to the airborne outfit. Strafing fighters act as the airborne scouting tanks. A complete striking force from the air, but intended to occupy strategic ground. How does such a force fit into an army on the ground? Perfectly. When the ground army makes contact with an airborne force, it merely joins hands with another infantry division, which has some air engineers attached working on the airfield that has been taken or built airfield, then airborne forces not only divert enemy troops, but supply the means of continuing and strengthening the attack by building airfields? If an airborne force is not assigned to the capture and repair of an airfield, its attached aviation engineers start building one as soon as they are landed by our gliders. The gliders can go anywhere, but our tug planes or the bomber and fighters have to have strip fields to operate from. And remember this, once such a strip is built, the glider forces that land to build it can be flown off again to another attack. Which means airborne forces are limited in tactical employment only by the imagination of the theater commander. With so much improvement of airborne operations since the German invasion of Crete, 
And with the experience of General MacArthur's and Colonel Cochran's forces, General Eisenhower's imagination can end up anywhere. Such operations, however, must put a great deal of responsibility on the shoulders of glider pilots. Yes, but they are trained for that. A glider pilot is the best all-around soldier of the Army. He has had the full field training of a soldier plus the full training of the Air Forces. He is a member of the Air Forces, but he is attached to fight with the Army on the ground. A glider pilot's first duty is to land his forces behind the enemy lines and then climb out of his glider and fight with the troops until relieved or evacuated for further missions. That's a diversified assignment and a tough one. It's not all the glider pilots are called on to do. Plenty of jobs await them in the European attack, just as we had many types of work during the Burma attacks. Some of my boys out there ate the landing their gliders, served as artillerymen, combat engineer, airbase crews, and commandos. Then they were brought out to fly another mission. Some of them made three such attacks, fighting throughout each. This reemployment eliminated the suicide theory on our operations. While we had gliders time after time reemployed on support missions, diversionary attacks as flying hospital and mobile engineering units. It's amazing to learn that gliders we use for mission after mission. Not all of them are. Certain attacks assignments required them and will require deliberate crash landings into postage stamp clearings. That's when a glider pilot is called upon to, di to display great skill and courage to place men safely at the right spot. You will remember General Wingate used exactly those words, great skill and courage, in praising our work in Burma. Even the men we carried out there who were from, from standard British infantry outfits, not trained airborne, group, airborne groups, said they would fly with us anywhere, anytime. That is an enviable compliment, and I'm sure very well deserved. Will there be any comparisons in your forthcoming work in Europe with that done by the Air Commando Force in Burma? Some. In Burma, our mission was not only to attack the Japs, but to seize some of his key centers and supply lines. The object was to take the only limited offensive permitted us before the monsoons broke. We didn't have the strength to mass in for a full-scale attack, and gliders made it possible to carry out surprise local attacks. More than that, the methods of attack we used, cutting the Jap supplies, forced the enemy out of the jungle to fight us, and then he was easier to get at. We proved that considerable force could be maintained by air for such local fighting out there. And here in Europe? The terrain and the problems are very much different. The terrain is simpler, the problems more complex. And of course, the airborne plans are so mammoth that the logistical requirements are not solvable by air transportation alone. However, we learned a lot of things by mistakes in Burma, and those lessons will be applied to save a lot of lives here. Can you give us one example of such lessons, Major Taylor? Well, we learned that if a section of an airborne invasion goes astray in the air through no fault of its own and lands in the wrong place, it still helps. As long as it is able to fight, it helps the overall invasion plan by its commando diversionary effect. The enemy can never be sure that any airborne forces is the main attack, a diversion or an accidental foray into his line or into his lines. Until he finds the answer, he expects the worst and deploys strong forces accordingly. How did you get happen to get into gliders, Major Taylor? Like many of our glider pilots, I wanted to fly power planes. But I couldn't satisfy some of the requirements. I was e always either married or too old, so I volunteered for the gliders. Most of our glider pilots are volunteers. What do you think of your glider equipment? Our gliders made by refrigerator companies, piano makers, beer companies, are uh, very fine. We proved in Burma that our American gliders will carry a much greater load than ever believed possible. I was overloaded in mine when I was first to land on the Broadway Strip outside Tafal in the first General Wingate operation. Mine was the first glider of a team. Then that was the proving ground for this service. In a sense, yes. It was certainly a testing ground for an airborne commando team to seize an airport site. 
hold it and construct an airstrip for further operations. We improved the condition of the end of Burma front and by helping shorten the air route to China, have almost doubled the amount of supplies going into that country. The success of the first air commando group in Burma was a great boost to those who wondered about the stagnation of the India front. I'm sure that further successes and more decorations await you here in your work with the Air Troop Carrier Command that will strike into Europe. In your lectures around the bases here, have you noted the attitude of the men? Yes, and it's excellent. They have an ex exceptionally strong morale. They know what they are up against and they are ready to do the job. You have some plans for Berlin then? All the boys have, and not even the Krauts will stop them. Good. Save some beer for me. Say, where did you get that southern accent? Big Creek, Mississippi. Thank you very much, Major William Taylor, and good luck to you and to the Airborne Forces. May you confuse and defeat the enemy as effectively as you did in Burma. War Telescope, the penetrating inquiries of the hows and wherefores of modern warfare, has completed with today's broadcast a survey of the entire formation of the ground forces that will operate within Europe. In their own voices, it has brought you the plans and feelings of the men from all the tactical units of the forces, the men who are about to do the job of ending the dark ages that descended upon Europe since the rise of Hitler. And now, before closing down, here are the last-minute news inserts from the day in London. Early evening reports from the Italian front state that despite firm resistance from the enemy, the Fifth Army is well inside Kesselring's final defense lines, and although there is not a breakthrough, there are prospects of early exploitation. The Eighth Army overhauled the enemy's retreat so rapidly in the central sector today that reconnaissance troops and sappers destroyed an enemy force in the process of digging in holding positions on the hilltops. Every Britisher here is discussing the historic flight of the American Mediterranean bomber forces to Russian bases yesterday and the implications of that success. Implications both political as well as military. They emphasize that where Englishmen and Frenchmen preceded them to fight by air from the Russian front, the Americans have not only moved in to do the same, but have effectively tied the Russian and Mediterranean battles into a common front. Now, Britishers are eagerly awaiting the first word of an RAF bomber force joining the shuttle line between either England and Russia or Italy and Russia, and Britishers would prefer both air forces shuttling on both routes. This is Merrill Muller reporting for War Telescope in London and returning you now to NBC in New York. And so until next Saturday at this same time, we put away the NBC War Telescope, a presentation during which members of the National Broadcasting Company's London staff present unusual sidelight stories on the war. Today you've heard NBC staff man Merrill Muller interviewing Major Cochran and Major William Taylor and speaking about the glider-transported troops and equipment. This presentation of the NBC News and Special Events Department has come to you from London and New York. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. My friends, yesterday, on June 4, 1944, Rome fell to American and Allied troops. The first of the Axis capitals is now in our hands. One up and two to go. It is perhaps significant that the first of these capitals to fall should have the longest history of all of them. The story of Rome goes back to the time of the foundations of our civilization. We can still see there monuments of the time when Rome and the Romans controlled the whole of the then known world. 
that too is significant. For the United Nations are determined that in the future, no one city and no one race will be able to control the whole of the world. In addition to the monuments of the older times, we also see in Rome the great symbol of Christianity, which had reached into almost every part of the world. There are other shrines and other churches in many places, but the churches and the shrines of Rome are visible symbols of the faith and determination of the early saints and martyrs that Christianity should live and become universal. And tonight, it will be a source of deep satisfaction that the freedom of the Pope and the Vatican City is assured by the armies of the United Nations. It is also significant that Rome has been liberated by the armed forces of many generations, many nations. The American and British armies who bore the chief burdens of battle found at their side our own North American neighbors, the gallant Canadians, the fighting New Zealanders from the far South Pacific, the courageous French and the French Moroccans, the South Africans, the Poles, and the East Indians, all of them fought with us on the bloody approaches to the city of Rome. The Italians, too, forswearing a partnership in the Axis, which they never desired, have sent their troops to join us in our battles against the German trespassers on their soil. The prospect of the liberation of Rome meant enough to Hitler and his generals to induce them to fight desperately at great cost of men and materials and with great sacrifice to their crumbling eastern line and to their western front. No thanks are due to them if Rome was spared the devastation which the Germans wreaked on Naples and other Italian cities. The Allied generals maneuvered so skillfully that the Nazis could only have stayed long enough to damage Rome at the risk of losing their armies. But Rome is, of course, more than a military objective. Ever since before the days of the Caesars, Rome has stood as a symbol of authority, Rome was the Republic. Rome was the Empire. Rome was and is, in a sense, the Catholic Church. And Rome was the capital of a united Italy. Later, unfortunately, a quarter of a century ago, Rome became the seat of fascism and, still later, one of the three capitals of the Axis. For this quarter century, the Italian people were enslaved. They were degraded by the rule of Mussolini from Rome. They will mark its liberation with deep emotion. In the north of Italy, the people are still dominated, threatened by the Nazi overlords, and their fascist puppets. Somehow in the back of my head, 
I still remember a name, Mussolini. Our victory comes at an excellent time. While our allied forces are poised for another strike at Western Europe, and while the armies of other Nazi soldiers nervously await our assault. And in the meantime, our gallant Russian allies continue to make their power felt more and more. From a strictly military standpoint, we had long ago accomplished certain of the main objectives of our Italian campaign. The control of the islands, the major islands, the control of the sea lanes of the Mediterranean, to shorten our combat and supply lines, and the capture of the airports, such as the great airports of Borgia, south of Rome, from which we have struck telling blows on the continent, the whole of the continent, all the way up to the Russian front. It would be unwise to inflate in our own minds the military importance of the capture of Rome, we shall have to push through a long period of greater effort and fiercer fighting before we get into Germany itself. The Germans have retreated thousands of miles all the way from the gates of Cairo through Libya and Tunisia and Sicily and southern Italy. They have suffered heavy losses, but not great enough yet to cause collapse. Germany has not yet been driven to surrender. Germany has not yet been driven to the point where she will be unable to recommence world conquest a generation hence. Therefore, the victory still lies some distance ahead. That distance will be covered in due time have no fear of that, but it will be tough and it will be costly, as I have told you many, many times. In Italy, the people had lived so long under the corrupt rule of Mussolini that in spite of the tinsel at the top, you have seen the pictures of him, their economic condition had grown steadily worse. Our troops have found starvation malnutrition, disease, a deteriorating education, a lowered public health, all byproducts of the fascist misrule. The task of the Allies in occupation has been stupendous. We have had to start at the very bottom, assisting local governments to reform on democratic lines. We have had to give them bread to replace that which was stolen out of their mouths by the Germans. We have had to make it possible for the Italians to raise and use their own local crops. We've had to help them cleanse their schools of fascist trappings. I think the American people as a whole approve the salvage of these human beings who are only now learning to walk in a new atmosphere of freedom. Some of us may let our thoughts run to the financial cost of it. Essentially, it is what we can call a form of relief. And at the same time, we hope that this relief will be an investment for the future, an investment that will pay dividends by eliminating fascism, 
By ending any Italian desires to start another war of aggression in the future. And that means that there are dividends which justify such an investment because they are additional supports for world peace. The Italian people are capable of self-government. We do not lose sight of their virtues as a peace-loving nation. We remember the many centuries in which the Italians were leaders in the arts and sciences, enriching the lives of all mankind. We remember the great sons of the Italian people, Galileo, Marconi, Michelangelo, Dante, and incidentally, that fearless discoverer who typifies the courage of Italy, Christopher Columbus. Italy cannot grow in stature by seeking to build up a great militaristic empire. Italians have been overcrowded within their own territories. But they do not need to try to conquer the lands of other peoples in order to find the breadth of life. Other peoples may not want to be conquered. In the past, Italians have come by the millions into the United States. They have been welcomed. They have prospered. They have become good citizens, community, government leaders. They are not Italian-Americans. They are Americans. Americans of Italian descent. Italians have gone in great numbers to the other Americas. Brazil, and the Argentine, for example. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of them. They have gone to many other nations in every continent of the world, giving of their industry and their talents and achieving success and the comfort of good living and good citizenship. Italy should go on as a great mother nation, contributing to the culture and the progress and the goodwill of all mankind, developing her special talents in the arts and crafts and sciences, and preserving her historic and cultural heritage for the benefit of all peoples. We want and expect the help of the future Italy toward lasting peace. All the other nations opposed to fascism and Nazism ought to help to give Italy a chance. The Germans, after years of domination in Rome, left the people in the Eternal City on the verge of starvation. We and the British will do and are doing everything we can to bring them relief. Anticipating the fall of Rome, we made preparations to ship food supplies to the city. But, of course, it should be borne in mind that the needs are so great, the transportation requirements of our armies are so heavy, that improvement must be gradual. But we have already begun to save the lives of the men, women, and children of Rome. This, I think, is an example of the efficiency of your machinery of war. The magnificent ability and energy of the American people in growing crops, in building the merchant ships, 
in making and collecting the cargoes, in getting the supplies over thousands of miles of water, and thinking ahead to meet emergencies. All this spells, I think, an amazing efficiency on the part of our armed forces, all the various agencies working with them, and American industry and labor as a whole. No great effort like this can be 100% perfect, but the batting average is very, very high. And so I extend the congratulations and the thanks tonight of the American people to General Alexander, who has been in command of the whole Italian operation, to our General Clark, to General Lease of the 5th and the 8th Armies, to General Wilson, the Supreme Allied Commander of the Mediterranean Theater, to General Devers, his American deputy, to General Eka, to Admirals Cunningham and Hewitt, and to all their brave officers and men. Welcome back. Meanwhile, while this was what people were hearing at home, President or General Eisenhower had an announcement to the tropes. His words were brief, but incredibly powerful. So let's go ahead and take a listen to that announcement. It's about two minutes, and it's from June the 5th of 1944. Soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force, you are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. In company with our brave allies and brothers-in-arms on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the elimination of Nazi tyranny over the oppressed peoples of Europe, and security for ourselves in a free world. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. But this is the year 1944. Much has happened since the Nazi triumphs of 1940-41. The United Nations have inflicted upon the Germans great defeats in open battle, man to man. Our air offensive has seriously reduced their strength in the air and their capacity to wage war on the ground. Our home fronts have given us an overwhelming superiority in weapons and munitions of war and placed at our disposal great reserves of trained fighting men. The tide has turned. The free men of the world are marching together to victory. I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty, and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. Good luck, and let us all beseech the blessing of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking. Welcome back. The message from General Eisenhower couldn't have been clearer. After all the speeches, the songs, the stories, the blood, the tears, the sacrifice, after the treasure and human life expended, it was all coming to a head on June the 6th. And tomorrow, we will take a look at that momentous day in human history. And I hope you'll be there to join us.
Until then, this is your host, Adam Graham, signing off. That will do it for today. If you uh, have a comment, email me, box13 at greatdetectives.net. I welcome your story or that of loved ones who served during World War II. Ken Curlin provides our opening theme music, kencurlin.com. I am your host, Adam Graham. This uh, series is provided as a service of the Great Detectives of Old Time Radio, greatdetectives.net.